morning, Miss Yale. Scripture reading today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them, welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country that they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Thanks, Julie. Just get ourselves set up here. Good morning. My name is Heather, and I am also one of the pastors here. It's good to see you all. And as Johnny said, um, I've been doing this podcast called Spark, and it's an opportunity for us to hear from different people about practices and habits that spark deeper love. We've been in a series that talk about practices like play and rest and justice and prayer, The woman that I interviewed for prayer, she learned how to pray in prison. And so it's like, how do you do these practices in everyday life? On Sunday, we come here, we hear it. Like, that's the point of this moment, is that we hear and rehearse the story so that we can tell it to each other. But then the practices that we learn about here, they get embodied and applied in our actual daily lives, at work, at home. And so sometimes... Like making that leap from the story that we hear here to like what that actually means in our everyday life. Sometimes that can be uh, difficult, like not always, but sometimes, like how does it translate? And so the hope of the podcast is that some of those practices would get really um, tangible so that you could be like, oh yeah, this is the day that I do this in this moment of my life. Um, And that's what helps to form us spiritually. And today, Julie read from Hebrews chapter 11. That's one of maybe the most pivotal passages in the text that it kind of rehearses the story of the people in the Bible who lived by faith. The people who were rooted and stable and grounded. And I feel like those stories could be, or, you know, they could just continue on. That chapter could like go on and on and on and on. And yes, there were stories that were from people from the Old Testament, stories of people from the New Testament. I think they could be stories of you. We could probably write a sentence about you and your life and the way that you root yourself. And so today, I've invited Michael O'Brien to come in. Actually, I met Michael because he is Megan O'Brien's dad, our ministry director. And um, she was going to her dad's book reading, and she's like, hey, HD, do you want to come to my dad's book reading? And I was like, well, that sounds fabulous. So we went downtown to his office, and we heard him, and he wrote a book called Monastery Mornings. And as he was reading from it, I was like, oh, this is really fascinating, and it plays really well into our practices. Um, The thing that Megan says about her dad, um, or something that I thought was really affectionate, she said one of her favorite things to do um, with her dad is to talk about the world and his work, and to watch movies and debate different topics, and that it always ends in a hug. And so today we're going to talk to, if you want to come up, Michael, today we're going to talk about the practice and habit of rootedness and stability. 
And all of, the, um, all of the stories from the text, all of those people that it talks about in Hebrews chapter 11, their lives were not going great a lot of the time. They were experiencing a lot of upheaval, things were challenging, and yet it says that at the same time they were able to stay rooted and stable. And um, as I was listening to you, Michael, talk um, at the at the reading, and then having read his book, I was like, oh, this is a story of rootedness and stability in a moment that was not stable and rooted. Um, and so maybe initially you can tell us a bit about... Um, so the context of this is that um, Michael was connected to a Trappist Abbey in Huntsville. And that happened in a moment of great instability in his life or instability. So maybe you can talk about that moment of instability and then this community of people that you found. Yes. Happy to do that. Can you hear me okay? Nope. <laughs> How about now? I can talk loudly. I'm a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> so uh, thank you for inviting me here today, Heather in particular, and uh, the team. And I'm delighted to be here with uh, your minister of magic, Megan O'Brien. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, that's, that, that's the right That's, that's the right exactly the right, okay, Tim, yeah. All right. That's what she told me. Anyway. Yeah, she's right. So uh, in the early 1970s, uh, I was uh, 10, 11, uh, and uh, my parents uh, got divorced, uh, which was a fairly traumatic event in our family, in particular for my mother, who this good Irish Catholic girl grew up in Burlington, Vermont, and never wanted to be anything other than a housewife and a mother. So suddenly she was thrust into a much different world unexpectedly with four children. And unfortunately, my father was not present in, in our lives. So we were, uh, uh, we were searching. We were in turmoil. Uh, and in the 1970s, uh, many of you are, are very young, I can tell by looking around here, so you won't understand this. But in the 1970s, gas cost 30 cents a gallon. Right? Wow. Uh, uh, so my mom, one of my mom's favorite things to do was to go for rides. So she, one day she said, let's go for a ride. Uh, so we did, and, and we drove up to the Ogden Valley. We lived in Clearfield, so we drove up to the Ogden Valley, Pineview Reservoir, and we saw a sign that said monastery with an arrow pointing in a certain direction. And good Irish Catholic family, we followed the sign, and we saw another <laughs> sign that said monastery, and it pointed to an, another direction. Uh, and we entered the gates of this beautiful 1,800-acre ranch, Abbey of the Holy Trinity in Huntsville, drove up over a hill, and this beautiful monastery uh, appeared at the end of the hill. You can see some pictures in the back when you have a moment to go and look. Uh, the bookstore was open that day, it was a Saturday. So we went in, and my mother, again, struggling, uh, me, 11-year-old, sort of lost without a father. Uh, my mother said to one of the monks, uh, Brother Felix, uh, can, can I tell you what I'm looking for? And she was looking for a book. But he said to her, I know what you're looking for, the same as everybody else, peace. Uh, and uh, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So for the next 10 years, I grew up, believe it or not, on a monastery with 33 Trappist monks as surrogate fathers. I worked on their farm. I helped in the chicken coop. I worked in the bookstore. I got into trouble. Uh, I, I snuck into the cemetery when I wasn't supposed to be there because I thought it was cool. Uh, but it, it provided me, uh, uh, as Hebrews wrote, uh, a, a country of my own, uh, a, a place to be um, during a time of turmoil. That's right. Mm. Stability. Yeah. This community of people provisioned you with yes. that stability. And 
I've also heard you talk about how not only was it a stability of place and space and physicality, but also in relationship with them, they offered you what you would name like a stability of expectation. Yes. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So, uh, you know, uh, when you grow up uh, without a father, uh, you're sort of, especially in the 1970s, you're in an odd and unique place. Mm -hmm. You're self-conscious. Um, you're not certain uh, where your place is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, my mother, to talk about stability, did a wonderful job as a single uh, mother trying to compensate for all of that. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I could be certain of, the two or three times a week when we would go up to the monastery in Huntsville, was that I would find a friend there mm -hmm. who would uh, be very interested in me, want to know about me, talk about me, and involve me in whatever he was doing. Mm -hmm. And one of the main persons who did that is uh, brother uh, Boniface. It's a photo of, of, of me and him. I was much cuter back then. Uh, <laughs> um, but this is, a, uh, this is a man who we would show up at the monastery. We would go to their chant in their beautiful chapel. And uh, afterwards, he would show up in these ragtag uh, clothes that he wore mm. to uh, do his farming work mm. and would let me go with him all mm. over the farm. So I would pretend to help him in the chicken coop and and uh, uh, go from site to site where he did his work, and uh, he taught me about his work and talked to me. And, and so I was certain that every time I went there, that there would be someone who would care for me. Hmm. And I think about that, like this stability of place and physicality, and then now also this, this stability of expectation. Um, and maybe I was, I'm remembering from your book, like that, that Brother Bon, who you call him Brother Bon. Yes. Like, th this wasn't just in your childhood or in your adolescence. There's a kind of stability that this community bring that has longevity to it. So you're on your, you're leaving home and Brother Bon writes a note to your mom and says, I know, like, your child is leaving. Like, I'm, I'm noticing that. I'm seeing that. I understand the absence. And then when you graduate from the bar, Brother Bon writes you this note and says, I'm ready for a drink, or I know what kind of drink I want behind the bar. Canadian clubs on me. Exactly. And so I think about it gives you this stability of place, physicality, of expectation, but then also there's this longevity to the kind of stability and rootedness that this community gave you. Yes, so they, you know, again, you might think it odd that, um, that monks who devote their lives to living in a monastery in a rather solitary search for God would take such an interest in other people, mm. um, but they did. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it wasn't just me who developed the friendship. My mother did, my sister did. Uh, my other two siblings were not in a position to go as often. Um, uh, even today, my children have. Mm. So the, the monks, there's three surviving monks and they're in their 90s, and we're still friends with them. Mm. Um, uh, Megan is one of the few, uh, you know, uh, children in the valley who has had to explain to people why her father hangs out with monks. Uh, but she's gotten to be friends with them as well. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them, Father Patrick, who's 94, uh, uh, was the greeter in the bookstore for many years. And uh, the other day, uh, I, I took him to one of his doctor appointments uh, mm -hmm. as a way of giving back. But Megan rode up with him uh, during a visit to Huntsville where we took them back up for a barbecue. The mm -hmm. current landowner of the monastery is good friends with them as well and invites them up from time to time. And Megan rode with Father Patrick in the back seat, and you know, this 26-year-old talking to this 94-year-old uh, man, and they became mm -hmm. instant friends. 
so much so that he asked me about her constantly. Uh, uh, he seems to like her better than me now, uh, which isn't surprising, uh, given given Megan. But it it it, it was a, a random stumbling upon a place that not only provided rootedness for me for the ten years after we started going there from age eleven to twenty one, but through today, and for my wife and for my family. I'd like to read the monks themselves. They take a vow of stability that is written. <coughs> here, um, and I think it's, it, these are, these, this is a practice that so clearly has had a deep impact on this family, and it's a practice that is part of this community, and so it's something that, that shows us that this spiritual practice bears a deep significance in our lives, and so as I read from your book about this vow, the vow of stability that the monks take, they, this is what they say about this vow and why they take this vow that it's not arbitrary or unmeaning, but there's a deep significance to it. And they say, by our vow of stability, we promise to commit ourselves for life to one community of brothers or sisters with whom we will work out our salvation in faith, hope, and love, resisting all temptation to escape the truth about ourselves by restless movement from one place to the next. Can we just hold on to that for half a second? I'm just going to read it again. Resisting all temptation to escape the truth about ourselves by restless movement from one place to the next, we gradually entrust ourselves to God's mercy experienced in the company of brothers or sisters who know us and accept us as we are. And I think as you talk about that, um, it, in your story, there's a sense that that vow becomes an embodied reality, that it's not just a claim that they're making, it becomes an embodied reality. And so I think the next question I'd, I'd have for you is how, what does that rootedness, um, how is it informed, like your own practices and habits? You've had this experience, maybe that's completely other than the one that you were kind of thrown into as a kid, losing a father. How would you say that those, that this practice now informs your own daily practices and habits of rootedness and stability? Well, again, a wonderful question. Mm -hmm. um, you should start a podcast. <laughs> uh, well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you, you might not think that <clears throat> uh, monks, uh, celibate monks, have much to say to those of us who live out here in the outside world. Mm. Um, but the radical and obvious insight of monasticism is that we all, <clears throat> we all need to find a home. We all need a place where we belong and someone to whom we belong. Um, and the challenge, of course, of that insight is uh, finding a home for ourselves and making a home for others. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I have done uh, with all five of the vows that the Trappists took, and you you read about one of them, is uh, obviously I'm not living as a celibate monk, right? That's how my wife and I were able to produce the Minister of Magic over here. <laughs> um, so I've had to translate, I've had to translate those vows into, uh, you know, the, the, a monk in the world. Um, and uh, uh, for me, stability, the way I've translated that, since I haven't lived in a monastery for 60 years, like many of these men did, mm. uh, is uh, the notion of community. Uh, of togetherness. Um, and I have uh, found it very important to try to create community and be part of community uh, 
everywhere I can, through our schools, through our, our, our church. We, we go to St. Thomas More Catholic Church in, in uh, Sandy, um, through my work, mm -hmm. uh, through uh, uh, our trespassing here on the occasion that you invite us, mm -hmm. occasions that you invite us, uh, and to teach uh, my children uh, the importance of community as well. So see, the, the beauty of this monastic insight uh, is that it's not limited to uh, men or women who live in monasteries. It's applicable to you right here. Uh, you're creating community. You're creating stability uh, for your congregation. Uh, you all together are creating community for each other. Um, so, you know, this radical notion that led to this, you know, significant movement in the Catholic Church uh, is something that is universal rather mm -hmm. than isolated. It's something that applies, you know, to the group of friends we go to lunch with at work uh, as, much, as much as it does to the place where we choose to worship every Sunday. And I think the reality is that relationships are difficult and challenging. And so stability and longevity. Thank you. Stability, longevity, like this, the fact that they expect to learn from one another, um, like maybe you can talk a little bit of that, like to create stability of expectation or to create stability in relationship. We've just been through a big upheaval as a community in terms of a pandemic. Um, maybe you could talk about some of even like the difficulties of creating that kind of stability and maybe some of the intentions or, or things that you do to, to, to continue to live rooted. Yes. Uh, well, you know, the, for the monks, it was a vow, uh, a promise they made to each other and to God and to themselves. Um, and you know, as many of you know, just because you make a vow or a promise doesn't mean, boom, that you've kept it the rest of your life, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's a day-by-day, hour-by-hour sort of thing. So I think that's the first Im Im an important consideration is, is that, you know, these men... Uh, I saw them living their promises day by day, hour by hour, mm. uh, which also include o obedience, which I've translated as listening, mm. um, uh, poverty, you know, I, I don't live in poverty, uh, which I've translated to be simplicity, mm. uh, celibacy, you know, minister of magic, I, I didn't keep that vow. Mm. Uh, so I've turned that into what I believe is a promise of devotion in my relationships, mm. stability, which I'll talk mm. about in a moment. They also take a vow called conversion of manners, mm -hmm. the notion that we can grow, we can evolve, we can become better people. Um, so translating each of those uh, uh, day by day, hour by hour, uh, mm -hmm. ha has been um, uh, the life path that they, mm -hmm. uh, they gave me, the legacy that they gave me. Mm -hmm. And how do you do it with stability? Incredibly challenging, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, to be stable is incredibly difficult when your relationships often depend on someone else's commitment to you. So how do you find stability when that other person leaves you? Mm -hmm. Very challenging. My mother is an example of how you might do that, mm -hmm. right? You, you devote yourself to others. You find other friendships. Um, uh, you try to compensate. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been a lesson to me, you know, mm -hmm. to, um, you know, the, the fact that stability comes and goes doesn't mean that we throw up our hands and, and just give up on the notion. Uh, illness. I haven't had to deal with great illness in my life, but I know many people who have. Um, how do you find stability um, when you wake up every morning 
terribly sick, right? Um, you do it with resilience. You do it by getting up and uh, going to your job even though you feel like hell. That's a form of stability. Mm. Um, uh, what about, you know, if, if you have no money, right? How do you live a stable life in that context? So again, uh, you know, just because there's this wonderful notion that stability is good for us, mm. uh, doesn't mean that we're all going to be able to be stable at any given moment. Mm. Uh, and what the monks taught me was to keep trying, mm. right? To keep striving, mm. not only to find stability in your own life, but perhaps to find a way to bring stability to others, mm. you know, to, mm -hmm. you know, to be there when they're sick, um, mm -hmm. to hold their hand when they mm -hmm. uh, have a relationship that's ending, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to help them when they're hungry, mm -hmm. right? The Beatitudes, mm -hmm. uh, we've heard of those. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, uh, I, I think that's how we, we strive for, mm -hmm. maintain, restore stability in our lives mm -hmm. when it disappears. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the notion that our lives are inherently unstable is ironically one of the key aspects mm. uh, of stability mm. uh, because once we accept that reality, mm. you know, we know that we just need to keep trying. Mm. That's a beautiful thing that you just said. The reality that life is inherently in unstable. And then in the middle of that instability, there's a kind of resiliency, there's a kind of um, spaciousness. There's a kind of listening and awareness that helps us to create or reach for the kinds of stability that we need or to provide um, that stability for others. And then in a minute, I'm just going to say, I'm going to ask any of you if you have a question for Michael. This can be participatory. And so um, in just a second, I'll ask um, some of you if you have a question. But also just wanted to name um, in the book that the, the Catholic Church and church in ge general isn't always a stable place for people. No. <laughs> um, especially with the sexual abuse scandal, like things like that that have happened. And um, I know that that's something that you've grappled with and I know that you've put it in the book and you also talk about your own sexual assault, not that happened in the context of the church, but the church being a place of stability for you when you're working through that. Um, so just want to name that because this has been a place of deep stability for you, but for many other people, this, this isn't a place of stability. So maybe you can just set, share a couple of words about that. And if people are more interested, you can attune to the book. And then I'll ask for a couple of questions from those of you who are sitting out and about. Sure. So I wrote the book for two reasons. Uh, the monastery closed in 2017. Um, the monks uh, were, the average age was in the high 80s and they, they weren't able to maintain their farm, their lifestyle, they needed help. Uh, so I wanted these men to be remembered. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were too modest to, to write a book about themselves, so, mm -hmm. so I did it for them. Uh, but the other reason is uh, I've been greatly troubled as a lifelong Catholic about the child abuse scandal. Um, and I almost left the church as a result of that and the resulting cover-up. Um, uh, and at the same time I was struggling with that decision, I learned that the monastery was closing. So I, I uh, sort of the, the rivers joined at a certain point and I had to uh, reconcile those two events. Um, you know, how could I leave a church that had uh, uh, such wonderful men who had cared for me when I was younger? Um, so I had to go backwards in order to go forward. Oh, and <laughs> sorry about that. Um, yeah. Do you need one? Pass them around to everybody, <laughs> right? Uh, um, and so I did. I went backwards and I remembered the 
you know, the people of the church who cared for me, including at a time when I was sexually assaulted as a, as a 12-year-old boy, not by a Catholic priest, not by anybody associated with the church, but by a total stranger. And that story is uh, painfully recounted uh, in the book. Um, and ironically, it was monks and priests and nuns who helped rescue me from that moment. Uh, so, you know, the insight, right? Mm -hmm. Not all Catholic priests are sexual predators. In fact, most of them are not, and most of them do the very thing uh, that these monks did for me, which is try to help people in this situation. Mm -hmm. Ironically, as I was writing the book, um, a guest came to our church, a woman from uh, South America who belongs to an order of nuns that rescue women from human trafficking. Um, I could relate to that moment uh, mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So it was an insight, right, that in all of our lives we have wheat and we have chaff and we have to separate the two and find the wheat uh, uh, and understand, um, you know, that everyone has chaff in their lives and we all have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's sort of the form of spiritual therapy that you see come out in the book mm -hmm. as to how I tried to reconcile the very awful things that happened to uh, some children in the Catholic Church uh, and compare it and juxtapose it and, and uh, put it in the same frame of the very wonderful things that happened to me and many, many other children in that mm -hmm. same context. And I think that's why this reality of rootedness and stability, that there, there's a complexity to these things. There's different stories, different experiences, and then different tools that we need to be able to step into stability and rootedness and attuning to one another and listening is part of that. So maybe just um, quickly, we don't have too much time, but I would love if somebody, if somebody has a question for Michael or something that has, has hit your brain that you would like to know a little bit more about, no pressure. And if there aren't any questions, that's okay, but I would love for there to be an opportunity for you as the community to ask something if it's on your mind. Could tell you the top three jokes the monks told too uh, <laughs> at some point. Totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah, in a minute, maybe. Yeah, oh, we yeah. do have a question. Wonderful. <laughs> yes. Yes, great question. Question mm -hmm. is, you know, the monks had to live their vows day by day, hour by hour. What practical steps did they do to, to keep those vows? You know, they, they have a very uh, set schedule, um, right? They get up at 3 in the morning, which was a deterrent to me to joining the order. <laughs> um, um, uh, you know, they, they pray seven times a day. Uh, their motto is ora et labora, uh, which is Latin for work and prayer. Um, you know, they sing... Uh, uh, there's a brotherhood. So the, the monastic life has evolved over a thousand years to provide what they refer to as practices to help support men as they try to live in that, in that role. And certainly the, the focus on liturgy and on manual labor uh, were, were key parts of it. Um, you know, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, they, you know, they had the same failings, of course, and weaknesses that we do. Uh, and I had a, Brother Boniface, I had a chance to read his prayer book uh, a few years ago uh, after he had died, um, and he annotated it heavily, and it was fascinating. I never talked with him about his annotations, but I found them fascinating because knowing him as I did, I could see him writing in his prayer book, trying to bolster himself up 
to keep his vows. So he would write things like, you know, dear God, help me in my unbelief, right? He wrote in all caps, right, which we know today in email and texting is shouting, right? <laughs> he wrote all in caps on one page, perseverance. And he wrote that several times over and over again. So I think, he, you know, this, in his solitude and in this rather solitary life, he developed this, this practice in addition to all the monastic, established monastic practices of sort of journaling in his own prayer book to remind himself uh, that it was worthwhile to stick it out. Uh, you know, they supported each other um, tremendously. Um, it was a true brotherhood. There's some lovely photos of, of, of uh, you know, one monk holding another monk's hand as he's dying. Um, uh, you know, so again, that sense of community and, and, and bolstering was there as well. You know, so th they don't have any, any magic uh, formula that we can copyright and, and, and sell as to how to do it. But, you know, it was basically uh, uh, keep working at it, pray, uh, uh, you know, uh, find a lifestyle uh, that works for you. Remind yourself uh, uh, to uh, keep your vows, to keep your promises. Have others around you who can gently remind you and help you do that. Those are some of the tactics that they seem to use. Yeah, I think the ones I hear there are like community, consistency, um, yeah, prayer, solitude, quiet, honesty, like so many beautiful things that root us. Yes. I saw a hand over there. Great question. Question was, uh, what was your turning point if there was one at the monastery and do you recommend journaling? Um, I don't know that I could point to one turning point. It was more of uh, an accumulation of many years. Um, you know, I mean, imagine uh, <clears throat> mom had to work 12, 14 hours a day. My sister was working. I was home alone uh, a lot. Uh, <clears throat> I was in a place where I could have gotten into a lot of trouble. Right? It could have been a much different ending to the story, uh, but because I had this place, these people who cared about me, um, you know, again, day by day over the course of 12 years, I think it, it had a stabilizing effect. Uh, so rather than one particular turning point, I think it was almost a decade uh, plus of, of, uh, of that sort of uh, uh, imprint on me, as I like to call it, and as I refer to it in the book. Um, in terms of journaling... Uh, <coughs> Uh, you know, many of the monks did. I, I don't journal regularly, but I do write a blog every week. It's called The Boy Monk, surprise, right? Um, uh, and that's been very therapeutic for me as well uh, to, uh, you know, to have that outlet. I've only been doing that for the last five years, so it's a rather recent practice. Um, but I know journaling is, is, is helpful to many, many people. Uh, and if I'm not incorrect, I think your own Minister of Magic journals um, she won't ever let me read it. Um, <laughs> I try to feed her things uh, to write about her father. I don't know if she actually accepts those <laughs> suggestions or not. Um, but, uh, mm. but I think journaling is certainly something many of the monks uh, did in their own informal way. So uh, I, I think it's a, a very valuable practice for many people. I know many of our Latter-day Saint brothers and sisters journal and find that a very, very uh, critical practice on their own spiritual path. Mm. Thank you so much, Michael. Michael will be in the back afterwards. He has pictures back there, and 
Um, you can chat more with him if you have questions. And then I'll just close us out. What I want everyone to do is kind of get comfy, kind of put your feet on the ground. And maybe there's a moment in your life where you um, can name instability. It could be right now. Where there's something in your life that creates anxiety or creates stress because it doesn't feel stable. And again, it doesn't have to be a moment right now. It could have been a moment, like for Michael, that happened in, in a younger time. I just want you to um, just name it. Don't think too much about it. Just name it. And now as we go into um, this next week, we have this chapter of Hebrews 11 that roots us in being a people of faith that can root and stabilize ourselves in the goodness and love of God. And that may be a struggle for you to believe that. But there's an invitation from that, habit, from that passage in Hebrews 11 to be rooted there. That God sees and that God understands. And that's what creates security and stability. Is being seen and being understood. And so now I want you to think about this week and I want you to think about an actual tangible practice you can reach for. Whether that's writing in a journal or whether that's talking to a friend or whether that's taking a moment to go out into the mountains and see something beautiful. Your stability doesn't have to come from a human. That might be too difficult at the moment. It could be from seeing a bird or... So I just want you to kind of get quiet and then pray, ask the Holy Spirit to show you a practice this week that would root you, that would stabilize you. And all you need to do is get access to that feeling of being seen and understood. And again, that feeling doesn't have to come from knowing that feeling with a human. That feeling can be a feeling that you know because of a TV show that's shown you that. Or a, or a blue sky. That's the feeling of security. That you are seen and understood. That's what brings security and stability and is what gives you the courage to persevere. Jesus, thanks for Michael. Thanks for this story that belongs, I would say, in Hebrews chapter 11. And that it shows us that um, there are practices that we can have that would um, root us and stabilize us in, in your love and in your goodness. And it doesn't come without its complexity. It doesn't come without its challenge, but it becomes an invitation. And so I pray today for this community that is Missio Day that we are the recipients of um, this story about this Trappist community that created an expectation of stability, not just in place, but in relationship. And so I pray that it would motivate us to be people that also practice rootedness and stability, not only so that we have it for ourselves, but that we have it to extend into our workplaces and into our families and ultimately becomes an extension that points to you, the one who is stable, the one who roots us, holds us, connects us to divine love. We pray this in Jesus' name.